Hey everyone, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We're going to get started. My name is Justin. If this is your first time, we're so glad that you're here. This is my good friend Brian McGreevy, and you're at Theology on Tap. So we're so excited that you are here. This is a really fun uh, Theology on Tap that we're going to do. So if this is your first time, you will see this sheet somewhere around you, hopefully. And the top barcode is a way that you could submit any question whatsoever that you want uh, throughout the course of this evening. It doesn't have to relate to anything that we talk about up to that point. And tonight, what we're actually going to be doing is going over the last couple months of all the questions that we never got to in that, that latter half of our time. And we put them in this bowl, and we'll pick them out. Justin is very excited about this Look at bowl. this thing. It's, so it is the please perfect tell him size bowl how much you like this for bowl. what we're doing tonight. I only, I wanted like, yeah, I won't tell you what I wanted to add. For, I, to dispose of it, I wanted like a little flame that I could just like, poof, be gone afterwards. But instead I have a plastic bag for that. Um, moving right along. So I did want to bring your attention. So this is Brian's last one for like, I, I think he's gone for the whole month of August. I, he I leaves tomorrow. So I told him what we're going to do is we're just going to go out on the town right after this till like his flight at 2 p.m. tomorrow. <laughs> so let's just take him. It'll be great. Uh, his wife would be very shocked if we did that. Um, but we do have a great couple uh, speakers that are going to join me while he's gone. I'm excited for that. And also mark your calendars. The last Sunday of August, August 28th, we, uh, we've done a couple events, special events at the Courtyard of St. Philip's where we have, um, you know, drinks and socializing. We've had a oyster roast, that sort of thing. This will be a way to kick off the fall semester, and we'd love for you to attend if you'd like to do that. Uh, there'll be more information to come on that, but that'll be August 28th, a Sunday from like 4 to 6 p.m. probably. Ways to get connected further if you would like to do that. Um, what, is that it? Am I missing anything? Uh, I think that's it. All right. Would you like to kick us off on, we'll go for 20, 25 minutes maybe of this. All right. See, see how, well, we got to try and do it, like limit our, I mean. Yeah, that's what we always say. We, we'll say we always say it. Yes. One minute maybe tops, yeah. like per question. Oh, oh, no. I hope that wasn't a good one. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be, that's really gross. What was it? What was it? We have to do that one now. <laughs> All right, there are several reasons is it this a is sign? really appropriate that it was fell on the wine. Do you think divine revelation still exists? Don't we already have God's full revelation in Christ? One of the reasons that this is amusing to me is one of my favorite red wines is Revelation. Uh, revelation. <laughs> Plucking this out of a glass of red wine seems particularly appropriate. That's kind of amazing. Um, but yeah, this is a great question. Does divine revelation still exist? Don't we already have God's full revelation in Christ? Uh, to the first question, yes, absolutely it still exists. And I think primarily that's what we have in the scriptures. So the mm -hmm. scriptures are the attestation, the witness of uh, God's, of Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament and the apostles' teaching of the New Testament about Jesus Christ is the climactic. That's why there is no more revelation. However, the, it's not as if that's some stagnant thing in the past. We have the Holy Spirit who said, uh, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come to bring to, to knowledge um, all the truth that was yes. about him. Yes. And so the scriptures are alive and active, Hebrews 4 says. And so 
today or in any age, when we go to the scriptures, we can expect to hear from God. You can mm-hmm. expect to have an encounter uh, with the divine. In yeah. yeah, and the only thing I would add to that is that one of the things about the way that God speaks and what the scriptures teach us about the role of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit will never lead us contrary to what the Word of God says. Uh, we need to be very careful of any kind of supposed revelation um, that is contrary to what God has revealed in Scripture. That's great. Yeah, that's good. All right. So the other one that did not fall into the glass of wine, what is the relationship of empathy slash compassion with suffering? Suffering, yeah. That's good. That's important, the idea of empathy, because I think think we talked about Job and his friends as Mm -hmm. the kind of prototypical sufferer. And what we see with his friends first is that they they came and they sat with him. They empathized at first. And then it kind of yes. went all downhill from there. But the, the whole point of compassion is that you're feeling with somebody. And it's a, it's a really important thing to do first and foremost with anybody who's suffering. is not to just barge in. And what his friends end up doing is tell him, well, let's try to find what you did wrong. We're going to fix you. Yeah, which yes. is the re- reason why you're suffering. The whole point of Job is that there is such a thing as even the righteous suffering. And uh, ultimately it's... When Christ returns, that he's going to make an end to all suffering. Uh, sometimes suffering is a result of what we've done. Sometimes it, it's not. But compassion and empathy are at the very first thing, I think, that we should, uh, our posture towards anyone that is suffering. Yeah, and I think one of the things important about that is that I think for many of us, if we have a friend who's suffering, if they've lost a loved one or something really difficult has happened in their lives, a lot of times we are hesitant to approach them because we don't know what to say. And we, we really worry about what am I gonna say? And I will tell you that it really doesn't matter at some level what you say. People will not remember what you say. They don't really want your advice. They just want you to be with them, to tell them that you love them and that you're there and that you're gonna walk through whatever it is with them. And if you can do that, that will be a huge ministry to that person. Uh, just briefly off of that, some of the best advice I've ever received, something that's honestly, my default is when things are uncomfortable and people are hurting to, to back away because it's uncomfortable and it's hard. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if we're ever to err on a side of either backing away or, or moving towards somebody, uh, it is it is moving towards them. Yes. And that is such an, an indictment, honestly, in my own life. But just what you said, moving close and sitting with and being with is 90% of um, what's helpful, I think, in my own yeah. life, what's been helpful for me, what people have done is just sit there. Yeah. You're really good at this, but um, <laughs> I, I think that's it's one of the things I want to Yes. There you go. Would you no, like? Yeah, I get yeah. a good one. Hopefully you I'm haven't dropped anything drop in your anything. drink yet. How do you struggle through feelings of purposelessness? How do you struggle through the feelings of purposelessness? Um, That is a great question. I think that that is what a lot of commentators and philosophers would say is the the existential issue of our culture today, that there is a massive sense of loss of meaning, a loss of sense of purpose. And so I think 
the very first way to deal with when you experience that feeling is to acknowledge that and to own that you're feeling that. Um, the second thing is to do some introspection and think about why, why am I feeling this? And I would suggest, without trying to be the armchair psychiatrist, uh, that one of the reasons that we often struggle with purposelessness is that we are looking to the wrong things to try to find purpose. We look to our job to try to find the purpose of our life. Or we look to our special relationship um, with our boyfriend or girlfriend trying to find that meaning or purpose. And nothing wrong with jobs, nothing wrong with boyfriends or girlfriends, they're not created to give you a sense of purpose. And it goes way back to that uh, quotation from Augustine long ago um, that our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. And so I would say when you're struggling with purposelessness, that that is a great motivation to try to lean into your relationship with God. If you don't have a relationship with God to begin to explore what that might look like, to find somebody who clearly does have a strong sense of purpose and talk to them and ask about what it is that has gotten them to where they are in their life. Because I will tell you, everybody struggles with that at some point or another. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned about moving towards other people and the, the role of community in when you're feeling isolated or depressed, uh, purposeless, the role of just being with people who can almost like grab you by the hand, so to speak, and just while you lack this sense of hope, their hope can almost be contagious and it can kind of rub off. Uh, that's what has helped me in, in my own life there. Uh, I would mention David Martin Lloyd-Jones, a 20th century British preacher who talked a lot about spiritual depression for Christians. Mm -hmm. And the fundamental thing that he said is that uh, even as Christians, we're prone to not believe the truths of what the Bible talks about. And so what he encourages people, who Christians even, who feel hopeless, is to go back to the basic truths of who you really are, who God mm -hmm. says that you are, that you are his adopted child, and the, the privileges that come with that. And the uh, the idea of being saved not by anything that we do but totally by his grace mm -hmm. and uh, just really going down deep into the, the statements that the scriptures make about who who we are and who we were made uh, to be yeah and the other thing I would say is go and read beautiful stories because so much of the literature of our current age is just dark and it, it, its presupposition is that there is no purpose that there yeah. is no meaning and so if you're ingesting that all the time, and that's all over our media feeds too, that's going to affect you. But if you get back and read beautiful stories, whether it's you know Narnia and the Lord of the Rings or whether it's Jane Austen or whatever it might be, um, things where there's beauty and truth and goodness that are expressed in these works of art, that will help shift your thinking about all that. It'll tap into the purpose that you know inside of right, you. Right, exactly. You yeah. I'm going to go again here. If our God is a God of mercy, why does the church still condemn homosexuality? That is a great question also. So one of the things that we get so confused in our um, cultural conversations about homosexuality is that we are 
very much into this idea right now that we are, each of us is our own creator, and that we speak our own truth, and that we are um, sort of free agents on a journey of self-discovery, and we can make ourselves into whatever we want to be. And that, that sounds really great and liberating, but the problem with that is that if you actually believe that we live in a world that has a creator, who created everything with a design, who created, as scripture tells us, way back in the beginning of Genesis, and this theme runs all the way through the Bible, that he created us male and female, uh, that that is God's design. That is the way that we are ordered, um, and that is revealed not just in God's word, but literally in the biology of how we're made. And so, clearly, that is the way God has ordained the world. And I think the, the way that the... Uh, Christian faith sees this is that to encourage someone to engage in an actively homosexual lifestyle is to encourage them to do something that is ultimately to their own hurt um, because you are um, pushing against the design that God has made. And that doesn't mean that if you feel attracted to other people of the same sex that um, you are a mistake or that you're evil or that God condemns you or anything like that. But what it does mean is that when we follow what God's word says, that is where we're going to find flourishing. And so it's not so much a matter of condemning people. I don't think the church has at times condemned people who are homosexuals, and that is wrong and evil and sinful. Um, I think that the calling of people to say, abandoning that lifestyle and coming over to where there is a more... Um, fruitful, flourishing way of living is really important. I'm excited about uh, my trip to England uh, that I'm going on, and one of the things that will be interesting is I'm meeting with a guy who is one of the leading clergymen in the Church of England, who's a brilliant scholar and theologian, um, who realized when he was in boarding school that he was same-sex attracted, but he was very committed to his Christian faith and has chosen to lead a celibate life and has had an incredibly fruitful ministry. And so I think those people, their voices don't get heard very much, but I think that is the view um, that Christianity holds up. Boy, the, the fear I have in giving one or two minutes to this question <laughs> is that you're just gonna hear just a little bit and, and completely write off the more robust understanding that I think the church does offer. It's, it's a better, more, whole, uh, we are not against anybody, actually, and that's the fundamental thing. So what I would say, in addition to all the great stuff that, that you just said, is that the Bible paints every single person, whether they identify as homosexual or heterosexual or whatever, that every single one of us are born into this world because of what the Bible says is original sin, um, because of the fall of our first parents, that all of us are broken. All of us, even in every aspect of us, is um, is deformed in some way. So every single one of us comes into the world now with um, a broken sexuality, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual. So I think the question's definitely kind of skewed towards just homosexuality, but I think what the Christians ought to say is, first and foremost, every single one of us uh, uses our, our sexuality in such a way that is not the way it was designed to be, um, you know? And so I would say that first and foremost, but only 
one of the things that makes this question so intolerable for many people today is that you, your identity has become so tied to what you do with your sexuality. And that is a really, really recent phenomenon that says basically there is no vision or plausibility for a life where you can't do whatever you want with your sexuality. And that's what the church would say is, no, you are far more than just your sexuality. Right, absolutely. And there's, um, you know, Jesus, who is God incarnate, uh, was a celibate person and who lived life to the fullest. Yes, abundantly. Abundantly. Uh, He wasn't any less of a person because he never had sex. And I think that is just something that our culture today has no comprehension of what could a life be that actually I can't live the way I feel like I want to with my sexuality. Uh, that's probably all in this, like, that's five Yeah, we could worth, spend all that on that. Th- there's, yeah, a week's worth of stuff we could yeah. say on that. Talk to us afterwards if you would like more on that. I just grabbed it. Um, what book would you recommend for dating relationships? I love how these are all over the place. Uh, I think we might have talked about this before, but my favorite book to recommend to people about dating is sort of an odd choice. Uh, it is a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And uh, I don't recommend that book because I think every dating relationship needs to be leading to marriage and you should never go out with someone unless you think you might marry them. Um, not at all. But what I love about that book, it's by Tim Keller, who's a great Presbyterian minister, is that he really sets out a Christian understanding of what relationships between men and women are designed to be. And our cultural understanding of that is so fundamentally flawed. And when you begin dating, even as a Christian, it is so hard to not buy into the cultural norms about that. And you expect that part of what dating means is that other person should be meeting all of your needs and that um, they are somehow going to be your soulmate and that everything, if you just find the right one, then it's all going to work and it's going to be glorious and you will both sail off into the sunset with violins playing and it will be amazing. Uh, But the, the problem with that is that no other human being can fulfill you. There is no way that any other person can experience and manage the weight of that expectation. But the meaning of marriage talks about how Christ is the one who does that and that as we seek together to serve him, we can come into this beautiful relationship um, with somebody of the opposite sex. And so I think the reason I like that book so much is it talks about selflessness, it talks about God's design, it talks about not putting more weight than the relationship can handle. And I think those kinds of things are hugely helpful when you're in the process of dating. That's a great one, I would have recommended that. Another thing I would recommend is reading uh, the great Christians, maybe, that uh, biographies Mm -hmm. of, I I think one of the books I brought once was The Shadow of the Almighty by Jim Elliott, or it was about the missionary Jim Elliott, or Through the Gates of Splendor was another Mm -hmm. one written by his wife, Elizabeth Elliott. And when you see people who are truly trying to live their entire lives for God and also date, there's a... it was stark. It's very countercultural. Oh my goodness! Yeah. I mean, it yeah. was two people trying to um, seek the Lord with all that they are and live that way, and and they kind of do it together. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a really refreshing way to look at it. So yeah. that's another one you 
might not expect to go yes. look at for dating, but that's what I would recommend. All right. Trying to drop this in the wine. <laughs> Is being narcissistic a sin? Yes. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, actually I love that question. Narcissism, especially if you were listening to me preach Sunday, I kind of went off on this on Sunday, but uh, narcissism is the besetting set of our culture right now. And the interesting thing about it is that it goes right back to the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis, where they wanted to be the center of the world. They wanted it to be all about them. They didn't want to have a God. They wanted to be God. And that is essentially what narcissism boils down to. That it is all about me. Uh, it is just all about me. I mean, who do you think you are? It is all about me. And this, this whole concept of everything revolves around me and other people need to change and be all about me and employers need to change and be all about me. Um, it is just profoundly unhealthy because it makes you the center of the universe. And that's not the way God made things. And so you're going to have rude awakening after rude awakening after rude awakening, and you're going to have anxiety and despair if you are a narcissist, because there's nothing uh, that you can do that will make you a successful narcissist, because other people are not going to buy into your narcissism. So it is, uh, it is fundamentally a sin, because it is rooted in pride, uh, which is the greatest of the of what were historically called the seven deadly sins. Pride is the worst one of those, and everything else flows from it. So trying to avoid narcissism is a really good thing. Yeah, I was going to say that the sin under every sin is pride, that I am the center of the universe. I control what, the way everything ought to be. And so, like you said, that was, that was great. It's a sin. And if you've never read The Myth of Narcissus, um, look that up on Google and just read the myth because it will show you that the end result of narcissism is death. Does putting on makeup distort our reflection of the image of God? Oh, that's a great question. That is a good question. How would you answer that? Um, I don't wear makeup. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, so actually... It means what you, by distort, I guess. Yeah, so I think that one of the things that is a foundational belief of the Christian faith and the witness of the scriptures is that God made everyone in his image and that God has made you beautiful. And there's an old song that said God makes everything beautiful in his own way. And that is absolutely true. And there are some sects of Christianity, like the Amish, for example, that will tell you you shouldn't wear makeup and that it is a sin wear makeup and sin to dress um, in anything other than a very drab way, all of that. I would say that is taking it too far, um, that makeup does not necessarily mean that you are marring the image of God. It may mean that you are um, trying to highlight the beauty that God has given to you. But if your heart is led into the idea that the way that I look on the outside is the most important thing, that that is a slippery slope. And there's a great, I wish I'd looked this up before, this is the thing that's hard about these right out of the box or out of the bowl questions. 
there's a great video that came out about probably 10 years ago that I think was sponsored by L'Oreal maybe that is about the way that a woman is made over before her face ends up on a billboard mm -hmm. and the way that her face is changed and digitized and all of that. Um, that is worth Googling and watching because it will show you that a lot of what we think of as beauty in our culture is not even real. You know, it is, it is all retouched. But it's a long way of saying I don't think that makeup necessarily mars the image of God, but I think you have to be careful about what your motivations are with it. Yeah, there's a lot. I, I think one of the good things that's happened recently, a lot of um, brands seem to be recognizing like body shaming, and so there's different um, marketing that is intentionally kind of going against, and there's still obviously a lot of the, the airbrushing and all of that that is, like you said, not even real. Uh, one of the things, I mean, boy, we didn't even talk about the image of God and the homosexuality question. I'm like, man, every single person has the image of God, yes. so there's equal worth, and that's the basic premise we have towards how we approach every single right, person. Right, exactly. Uh, but we also, that image of God, though it's still there and it's the basis for how we treat everyone, all of us have uh, shattered that image in some capacity. We still have it, yet in some ways, uh, because of sin, it is distorted, right? And so like you said, the motivation behind uh, makeup, it can be trying to cover up the distorted part of the image of God, which I would say that's not that, or it could be to accentuate parts of it that are part of the image mm -hmm. of God. And also the image of God is not just a physical component, it's also, like you said, a spiritual inward part of it too. So both body and soul is, is part of the image of God. But I wouldn't say it's necessarily sinful to wear makeup, but I would say it can be become a, a sin in your life if it's for the wrong motivations. Yeah. Did I just do the last one? Go, right right. Go for it. Please explain to me sola scriptura. Where did this come from? Why don't you translate, you don't you translate that Why don't you do that? All right. It's a, that's a Latin phrase for scripture alone. It was one of the five phrases of the Reformation that basically over against the Church of Rome said that the highest authority, not the only authority, but the highest authority is God's word in scripture. And that's, that's really important. Again, that's a hallmark of the Reformation. The Reformation happened in the 16th century, beginning with Martin Luther. But what they ultimately tried to do is go back to the early church. What was the basis of the early church's existence? And that was also uh, the church fathers always were looking at what does scripture teach? Yeah, and I think part of the reason that that's so important is that when you look at Jesus's ministry and then you look at the ministry of the disciples, that was very clearly what their view was and that what was ordained by the word of God was what was important and what was not ordained by the word of God was not to be required of anyone. At the end of the day, it's God's word. His, he's the ultimate authority. And then so we do have traditions and, and things like that, but those don't come up on the same level right. as, yeah. as the divine word of God. That was an easier one. <laughs> a couple more? Uh, this is a good question. What about the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Acts of Peter, the Book of Enoch? The Book of Enoch is quoted in Jude. Does that speak to the inspiration of the Book of Enoch? So, uh, yes. These are <laughs> These are books. How many of you have ever heard of any of these? 
Okay, good. All right, so those are, uh, this is a really fun word, those, those are what are called by New Testament scholars pseudepigrapha, um, which is a fun word to say, uh, pseudepigrapha, try spelling that. Uh, but the, the thing about the pseudepigrapha are those are books that are extra canonical. And you might remember if you were here when we talked about the Bible, one of the things we said for the books in the New Testament, uh, for them to be accepted in the New Testament, they needed to be written either by one of Jesus' disciples or told to the writer by one of Jesus' disciples. And they needed to be reduced to writing within the lifetime of eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry. So that meant 100 AD was the cutoff for anything that would ever go into the New Testament. All of these pseudepigraphal works are later than that. Some of them much later than that. They also don't meet the other criteria of being written by apostles or uh, told to the writer by apostles. Um, many of them came out of the Gnostic movement, uh, which is an early Christian heresy. Many of these books were essentially unknown in modern scholarship until an archaeological dig at a place called Nag Hammadi in Egypt. And uh, a lot of these were discovered, and then they became this big deal by people that were really not very well informed, um, who thought, oh, these are like at the same level with the Gospel of Mark, and the church just chose not to use them, and because they didn't like what they said, um, which is the whole thesis of the Da Vinci Code. Y'all are probably too young to know too much about the Da Vinci Code. How many of y'all read the Da Vinci Code or seen the movie? Okay, more of you than I would have thought. Um, but that's basically the premise of that, which is totally wrong um, from any kind of scholarly point of view. Would you like to yeah, chime in on that? Just the second part of that question, just because it's, okay, the Book of Enoch's quoted in Scripture. Hopefully it's pretty clear that that doesn't automatically mean that it, it itself is Scripture. Right, like the pagan philosophers that Paul quotes and other in, in Acts maybe 17 yeah. that yeah. I just heard. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it, Paul quotes Epimenides and... Uh, Eratus's poem. I can't, I butchered that, but um, just because you're citing somebody, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're claiming that this is on the same level as God's divine revelation. Yeah, and I would just, again, give a book plug. If you've never read uh, Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams, not my friend Peter Williams that lives on Meeting Street, but uh, Peter Williams, the brilliant scholar at Cambridge, it is an excellent actually really interesting, easy to read book that will change your life um, and just make you that much more convinced if you weren't about the veracity of the Gospels. I went on to pick another one here. We just got a couple minutes, uh, a couple more of these maybe. Thoughts on contraception and birth control? Another softball your way right there. Okay, <laughs> so that's not controversial at all. Um, so contraception and birth control. Uh, one of the things that we miss uh, in our current culture is that for most of human history, and particularly in Christian history, children were seen as a blessing from God. And marriage and procreation were absolutely linked together. And the idea of sexual activity um, was always linked to the possibility of procreation. So even when I was little, I was thinking about this the other day, when I used to go to Camp St. Christopher, um, when I was a little kid, 
if they thought that, that you had a crush on a girl, um, they would sing this little ditty um, that would be like Brian and Jane sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. And then the next part was first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Jane with a baby carriage. And that, you know, that, that was the way people thought about these things. And I'm not that old, um, so it was not that long ago. But I think that this whole idea of um, what happened, particularly with the invention of the birth control pill, was that it completely did away with this linkage between the act of sex and procreation and marriage. And all of a sudden, sexual activity became something that was a right or an entitlement that didn't have any consequences. And um, there's a great book by a brilliant woman named Mary Eberstaff. It's called Adam and Eve Before the Pill um, that is really good on this topic. All of that is a long way of saying, I don't think that contraception is necessarily wrong within marriage, um, but I do think that this whole idea of recreational sex is not something that accords with the design that God has made. This really goes to kind of what we were saying earlier, that it, particularly once the pill has become so widespread, the whole revolution of basically, I should be able, I'm entitled to do whatever I want with sex, and that when you actually conceive, which is the whole, like, <laughs> kind of what's designed to happen there, that's seen as a problem, mm -hmm. uh, potentially. And so that technology that's there, like you said, it's not necessarily simple, some of it, uh, within marriage, mm -hmm. because you you should I think have the freedom to have some, uh, and again it goes down to your motivations too. I think far too often in my own heart, I think that I have to have a certain lifestyle to bring children into, and I think that is that is problematic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't I don't think it's necessarily sinful within marriage to have uh, the the freedom and uh, I guess. Christian liberty to discern when when you can, but don't think of it as necessarily a problem when God does, I mean, our first child was born on contraception, we were like, this is not what we were expecting. <laughs> okay, but we yeah. rolled with it, and it was yeah. a blessing. Um, so, but so much has happened in the last 40, 50 years in light of, in light of that, where now we uh, basically think that we should be entitled to do whatever we want, and we're surprised when, when this happens. Yeah. So. One more. All right. All right. <laughs> How do you walk the line between being a Pollyanna and a Debbie Downer when sharing struggles with friends? That's a great question, too. What, what do those mean? <laughs> OK, so a Pollyanna, uh, in case you haven't read classic literature, um, a Pollyanna uh, is someone Sorry, Justin. Um, a Pollyanna is someone who, when you come to them with your problem, looks at you and says, don't worry, it will all be fine. Don't worry, let's look at the daisies. Oh, it's going to be great. Um, so they just utterly dismissive of whatever it is, that it's all going to be fine, no matter what, no matter how terrible it is, it's all going to be fine. Debbie Downer is not in I know what Debbie Downer is. Yeah, so. <laughs> But I, I do think that we have a tendency sometimes when our friends are suffering, um, as we talked about a little bit earlier in the evening, 
uh, we worry a lot about what to say to them. And I think, again, although what we say matters some, the most important thing is to be there and to walk with them through whatever is going on. To listen, to not be tempted to try to fix the person. Um, not to be sexist, but I think guys a lot of times want to try to fix people when we're in conversations with them. And we would be much better served sometimes to just listen and to empathize than to immediately try to act. So I think if you are dealing with a friend that's struggling with something, you want to listen, you want to be there, you want to assure them of your care and love for them. Um, you do not want to um, lead them into despair and say, this is the worst thing that I've ever heard of in my life. You, know, you might as well just give up. Um, that, is, that is not helpful. Um, but I think giving them scripture to think about, sharing from your own life struggles that you've gone through, and pledging to be with them is the way to walk through these struggles. And if you have a friend that is continually struggling, um, that may be the time where you suggest that getting a counselor or a priest involved might be something that would be helpful. Yeah, I think those two, uh, Pollyanna and uh, Debbie Downer, are the two extremes that we can comfortably want to go to to get out of the discomfort and then the tension, which is what it looks like, I think, to really be helpful to people who are suffering. Is right, this to sit with them. This tension yeah. of there is real pain, trouble, and evil in the world that has happened probably to you. And yet, we don't grieve as those without hope. And, and the Christian gospel is that, that every wrong will be righted at the end of the age. And so we do look forward to that day when Christ returns. And even, as Lewis says, right, all these wrongs will be undone. And um, so I think the temptation, how you walk the fine line is just simply don't end up on one of the extremes just to make yourself feel better and less uncomfortable. Right. Um, you know, nobody, the times where people have not really listened and just immediately said, you know, you should be, you're a Christian, be happy, you know, be, be joyful, that, that doesn't really, uh, A, help much, but also <laughs> the, there tends to be a rift after that happens in the relationship. But also those who only just kind of, like an Eeyore kind of moan with you the whole time, you sit in your muck, basically. And so they're, they're, you've got to... The Psalms are so good at this. They give real voice to our sufferings, and yet they always end on this note Point of toward hope. looking towards yeah. hope. Yeah. So. All right. Those were, those were some of the harder ones. All right. Mm -hmm. how, um, in, how are we doing on the questions from tonight? So we have a few questions. All right. Everyone can take 30 seconds. I'll vote the ones that they want to hear because we have quite a variety here. We have quite a variety of questions that we pulled out of the hat Yes. Gosh, and we still, we just have this running pile. Look at this. <laughs> These are all really great. We'd have to do an all-nighter. We'll have a theology yeah, on You thought you were going in. home. We're actually <laughs> just going to keep pulling up Okay. 
first question. Kanye West has one of the largest followings of any musician. Would you say that his release of Jesus is King is the modern day version of mass evangelism? Uh, that is a great question. I do not know Kanye West personally. Um, I do not see into Kanye West's heart um, to know what his motivations are. But I do think that um, clearly he believes that God has called him to try to speak into his faith in a public way. And I would not want to be in the position of judging about whether he's doing that successfully or not. Um, but I do think that uh, it is a reminder to all of us that we are called to try to live out what we believe and to give voice to those convictions. Do you want to add anything? No, that's right. That was a really good answer. I can't decide on long-term goals for myself or a general direction for my life. Any advice for long-term goals? Uh, yeah, so I would say one of the great things to do when you are in that position is to look around you and see who is in your life that does seem to have long-term goals, who seems to be flourishing, and to spend some time talking with that person about how they got to that place, particularly if that person is a Christian. Yeah, and I think <coughs> it's great to try and look inward yourself to see what things, gifts, strengths you have. A far better thing would be to go to people that uh, that know you really well. So you know, so if you happen to be married, you ask this question, or if you have parents, people that really friends who really know you, ask them, "What do you see me possibly doing?" Uh, the biggest thing in both of these is going and asking other people who know you and, and receiving their counsel and just kind of also not being afraid to just start what's in front of you and see where it takes you. Yeah. That's not a bad thing. And try different things. Yeah. 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 And it may not come immediately, and that's okay. And I will say I'm the poster child for that because <laughs> I started college as a piano performance major at age 17 and then changed and majored in history, and then changed and majored in historic preservation, and then changed and did law school, and then changed from preservation law to intellectual property law, and then worked as a lawyer, and then quit and ran a bed and breakfast for 10 years, and then went into the clergy. So feeling like you've got to figure out one thing and do it for the rest of your life, that is not at all scriptural. You see lots of people in scripture that have done all sorts of different things. And I'm really grateful for every one of those steps. I'm so glad that God led through all of that. Long-term goals are great, but they, they can change very yes. easily. And that's okay. Are dry queens the antichrist? No. 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 I don't think we know anything about trying to identify a particular person I mean, the Reformation, they identified the Pope as the Antichrist. Uh, again, every single person living is made in the image of God. And so, no, they're not the Antichrist. What are your thoughts on church culture and how media has portrayed it? 
That is an interesting question. So um, do you want to take a step at defining what purity yeah. culture is? Purity culture, particularly in like fundamentalist churches, kind of uh, where there is a lot of pressure to essentially showcase and, and to, to live according to the sexual laws that God has for you in your life. Um, and so, I mean, in my own life, an example of this, I was I was part of that uh, as a going to youth group, and there was this thing called the silver ring thing. You would go to it, and you would take a vow that you would want to wait until marriage, basically. And you wore a ring uh, on there. And one of the problems with purity culture is that it just... Again, it makes it all about your actions and neglects the heart level. And so what happened, you know, Jesus talks about when you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So um, should I have taken my ring off the second I committed lust? Well, if I was being consistent, you know, like that's one of those things that purity culture sets you up for failure in some sense, a radical purity culture. Now, what they're after is like just what we said earlier, that there is a design in the world that living according to God's design in every area of our life is what is best and going to make us flourish and ultimately provide the most happiness. Um, but there can be a lot of legalism that comes with it that really brings a lot of shame and guilt uh, when you don't measure up to those kind of man-made laws like wearing a, a particular purity ring on your finger or something like that. But I would also say that I think a lot of the way the mainstream media deals with it is to just make fun of the idea that keeping yourself sexually pure, being celibate until you're married, um, that that's just a laughable idea in our culture. And I would say that's not a laughable idea. That is actually the best design for flourishing. Uh, if you look at actually some of the statistical evidence of people who um, talk about, are they excited about the fact that they were sexually active before marriage? Um, you will see that that is a statistic that is loaded with regrets. So uh, it is not something where people come into it thinking, oh, I'm going to create all this baggage in my life that I'm going to then be carrying around with me. But in fact, that's what ends up happening. Uh, it's laughable. There's no plausibility for living a celibate life. Right, uh, if you're like Jesus. Like, yeah, it, it just... Clearly um, he was a failure. Yeah, and that's one of the biggest things that if we are to, I think, if our culture can actually begin to see that it's not laughable and it shouldn't be mocked, that there can be great freedom in that. I think that's one of the reasons why there's so much anxiety and depression is because you're looking to something that you've made into an ultimate thing like sex, and it will never yeah. provide it. How do you balance generosity with your time and money while also saving and being financially responsible? It's a great question. It is a great question. Uh, I think that is a very difficult question to answer in generalities. Uh, there's a great quotation from C.S. Lewis about giving and generosity that says you always need to give more than you are comfortable giving. And Lewis modeled that by actually giving away all of the royalties of all of his books into a blind trust for widows and orphans. Um, most of us probably are not quite at the point where we're ready to do that. But I do think that uh, thinking about the question, trying to figure out what's the balance between meeting your own needs and identifying what are really needs and what are wants and not being swayed by what the culture says you need to have 
Um, those are all things that have to be prayerfully discerned. Um, and that's something you can prayerfully discern in context with an older Christian. Um, I think that could be very helpful. If you're just starting out in life, that can be very, very difficult to figure out on your own. But talking to somebody you respect who's older that seems to have gotten their head around that a little bit can be really helpful. What's helped me is actually having a budget. And so you know what you're spending, where it's going. And that can be the best, some of the best ways to actually be generous is mm -hmm. to know what you have and to steward. I mean, it's, there's so many places in the Bible to talk about, you know, stewardship, I guess. But the parable uh, of being lent uh, different talents, mm -hmm. five uh, 10, 5, and 1, I think is what yep. it is. And uh, If you're entrusted with a lot, you're expected to um, to do much with that. And so for me, it was, yeah, uh, you know, Dave Ramsey has a course out there, which is different opinions on it. I think it can be helpful. But for me, simply just looking at a budget and figuring out, okay, how much do I have? Uh, how much can I give? How much can I actually, and, and trying to increase that on a regular basis is a great place to start. Uh, you know, I've got three children, so I'm also trying to save and do things. Now, neither of those are perfect. I wish I was more generous, and I wish I'd saved more. Uh, but you, you can't actually grow in either of those if you don't have a budget. Most people I talk with have no idea about yeah. what they're spending or saving or giving away. Yeah. And one thing I liked about that question was the generosity about time. Okay. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, we are not very good at is keeping a time budget and looking at how much of our time goes into amusing ourselves. And I think that you know, our faith, if you're a Christian, is a profoundly other-centered faith. And so if most of your downtime is devoted to entertaining yourself, there's something wrong with that. And so you need to sort of reframe your priorities uh, to make sure that you are spending time not only um, nurturing friendships that are dear to you, but looking for people where your time invested in them can make a difference in their life, serving people who are less fortunate, all of those kinds of things, because you will find that those things will ultimately bring you much more joy than binging on stranger things. I will say I love stranger things. I do too. But, <laughs> but yeah, we are the most leisure culture in history. Yes. I mean, there's so much. Our exorcism is real, and if so, have you witnessed one? Our exorcism's real, and if so, have you witnessed one? Um, I would say yes, they can be real. I think that demons are real. I think that there are different aspects of that. Um, I have never witnessed or been part of an exorcism where there was a demon in a person. Um, I have witnessed and been part of a place where there was um, what you might call an evil presence in a place where um, there was a rite done to cleanse that place. And it made me very aware that what we were doing was very real. Um, do you like to yeah, add to that? I think recognize, and more and more people today recognize that it's not just a naturalistic world. There's this supernatural element and forces of wickedness just like there's uh, forces that are uh, God and his angels. However, and for me, I, I think I have witnessed an exorcism. Um, that's the, the best way I could describe it. And 
Yeah, it's not at all like Hollywood where you're seeing somebody's head spin around. Uh, but there was very much, like you describe, as, as presence of evil and mm -hmm. um, a sense of peace and wholeness once, once it was done. Yeah. Yep. Yep. One or two more? What is the importance of Melchizedek? Oh, Melchizedek. <laughs> Melchizedek is awesome. Um, so Melchizedek appears in the book of Genesis and he appears to Abraham and he is called a priest of Salem. And Salem is connected with Jerusalem. It's also connected linguistically with the Hebrew word Shalom. And he comes and he brings bread and wine. And so this is, in most Christian scholars' view, a prefiguring of the priesthood and ministry of Jesus, that Melchizedek is not a priest that comes in the line of Levi like all of the other Old Testament priests. He's a priest outside of that line, but comes with blessing, coming with bread and wine. And so that is expanded on, particularly in the letter to the Hebrews, talking about um, Jesus as being a priest in the order of Melchizedek um, coming, and then of course the symbolism of Jesus's body and blood being the bread and wine in our communion service. Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming whoever asked this question probably has read the book of Hebrews, but if you haven't, go and just sit down and read some. It's all about how Jesus is better than anything they had yeah. in the Old Testament, and particularly Hebrews 7 through 12 talks about this Melchizedek. Yeah. Uh, basically, Jesus is better than these Old Testament priests who offered sacrifices that were inferior. Like, if, if our sin ultimately is a human sin, then the sacrifice needed for it needs to be a human one. And so God came in the person of Jesus Christ in the flesh, to and he, he's a better sacrifice, that he's one that's fit for human sin. But he's better than these priests who just could only offer it once, and they also had sin that they had to cover themselves Jesus offered, or they offered it repeatedly. Jesus offered it one time, and it was eternal. Yep. And that his his sacrifice and his priesthood, that he is never dying, that he's living forever to actually intercede uh, on our behalf, is some rich, rich good news yep. in that, that he's, he's eternal. And that's what Melchizedek was understood, that he, um, a lot of tradition holds that he never died. So, yeah. All right. That's probably all the time we have. Uh, great questions tonight. It, we really didn't do justice to a number of them. So if you have further questions, please do come and talk to us. We, uh, we take these things very seriously, and they're, they're important. But thank you so much for coming. This is always so much fun for us. Brian, we're going to miss you for the next uh, couple of I will of miss them. being here. I'll send you a video chat from an Inklings pub. Oh, my gosh. I'm jealous. <laughs> but uh, we'll be back again in two weeks, two weeks, uh, August 16th. We hope that you can join us again. Thanks for coming tonight.